Hello, everyone, and welcome to season two of Fresh Tech Fridays. I'm your host, Tom Gilsonen. Our first episode is starting off strong with my friend and colleague, Oliver Robinson. Oliver Robinson is a solutions architect at Juniper Networks, where he works on designing system and network solutions, primarily for the media and entertainment industry. His career thus far has spanned over 20 years with roles in systems administration, sales and product management, and others. He has worked with technology companies, including Cisco, DataDirect Networks, Symantec, NetApp, and Oracle, to name a few. Prior to joining Juniper Networks and a departure from his tech career, Oliver actually founded and spent five years building a mobile game studio based in London, England. Oliver currently resides in the San Francisco Bay Area. When he's not working, he enjoys hiking, playing guitar, reading, and playing video and board games. So without any further ado, let's get into it. Oliver, thanks so much for uh, joining us for Fresh Tech Friday today. I really appreciate you uh, coming out virtually as it may be. How are you doing today? Absolutely. Hi there, Tom. And uh, thank you so much for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. Oliver Robinson is currently with uh, Juniper Networks, and um, we got to know each other over the last several months. Um, Why don't you, Oliver, tell us a little bit about your role there and what you do, and then... um, you know, I know it's a, it's a long tail for both of us, how we ended up where we are, but tell me a little bit about how you got started in the industry and um, how you ended up joining Juniper Networks. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I joined Juniper in 2019. Uh, my background is actually not networking. So it was a little bit of a, a an interesting journey in terms of how I got there. An old work friend of mine um, from my NetApp days uh, had joined Juniper via an acquisition. And he had reached out to me. He knew I was looking uh, for a new role. I'd I'd come out of doing a startup for a few years, and I was looking to uh, rebuild the coffers, literally, uh, and go back into corporate. And uh, he reached out to me and said, um, you know, hey, are you interested in this? We're doing some really cool stuff at at Juniper. And I said, sure. And you know how these things go. One thing led to another, and uh, I ended up joining. And interestingly, my original role was actually in the CTO group, and I was working on um, something storage, well, cloud storage related. And then I uh, sort of pivoted into a new role and rejoined the sales organization and uh, started work um, uh, on solutions for the media and entertainment industry, which is uh, what I'm working on um, now. Sounds good. And I imagine, I mean, that's obviously an industry I've done a little work in myself. There's been like tons and tons of changes over the last specifically five years. I mean, it's always quick moving, but uh, I imagine that was a like a good time and an exciting time to, since the network has suddenly become so much more important as we start to move so much stuff to the edge, to the cloud. Yeah, ab- ab- absolutely. And I think um, it, it's interesting in Juniper, right? Because I actually did not know that Juniper did anything in media and entertainment before I, I joined. And, and I think the reason why was because Juniper does it very quietly. I was surprised at the number of customers that Juniper already has uh, in the m and and broadcast space. And so uh, when I sort of took on the role, in many ways, it was to uh, formalize our investment um, or to indicate that we are, hey, we're making an investment here because I'm very, I'm basically focused in that area, and mm-hmm. uh, it was a real surprise to me that there's there's big companies you can go to the website and look at public references like Discovery Communications and folks like that that use us, and I, I think the company decided you know it was time to. Um, I wouldn't say shout from the rooftops, uh, but it was definitely time to uh, make a little bit more noise about what Juniper can do uh, for for uh, media and entertainment customers. 
I um I can say in my travels I've stumbled stumbled upon a limited number of installations, but they were so big, and that's what really shocked me. I, like in terms of your customers who had made an investment had made like such an enormous, you know, your biggest, you know, like routing chassis, et cetera. Which actually, I mean, that's that was one of the things about Juniper that's very interesting is the people that love you guys love you guys so much, um, which is you know. Hopefully what our customers say about us, and I definitely, you guys seem to have that sort of, it's like beyond just the brand, it's like almost a tribe is the wrong word, but it's like, you've got this like group of advocate supporters, you know, that love the platform so much. Yeah, absolutely. And and it's and it's it's obviously growing and I think as the company grows, um more people are seeing that hey, this is what Juniper can do. It was a real surprise to me actually when I joined. I mean, just, you know, uh, 100% honest it because uh, I thought Juniper just made routers for large uh, service providers. Um that was yes. the background. Everyone knew that hey, the internet was kind of powered by Juniper. Yeah. And so it was a real surprise to me when I joined and I saw just what the company's focus was moving into the, you know, the edge devices, campuses, uh, growing that story. Um, and some of the acquisitions the company's made, uh, like um, they acquired a company called Mist a couple of years ago, which has uh, just been huge for Juniper. And I think it helps reinforce the existing story and it helps develop an, uh, the narrative for where Juniper can go. The, the joking version I always give is this is not your grandfather's Juniper, right? That's, uh, right. That, that's, that's the joke I always make. Yeah. Sometime, not on this podcast, I'll share a story with you about uh, a large service provided customer that decided they would try something else besides Juniper and uh, how it went when they tried to migrate the routing tables. But let's just say if it's big and you have a lot of routes, you guys are kind of uh, have always been the choice. Um, all right. So you were at NetApp. You said you went and did a startup for a minute. You ended up at um, more than a minute. You ended up at Juniper. Tell me how you ended up at NetApp. Like how did your career in technology begin? What you know inspired you to, to choose a career in technology? Yeah, I started. Uh, um, despite my 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 young looks here, I started in the mid nineties. Uh, that's when I sort of cut my teeth on on tech. I was an old school uh, Unix guy uh, back in the day. Um, I, I was uh, uh, introduced to Sun uh, servers in the early mid nineties. Um, so this was, you know, I think what, Solaris two or mm -hmm. Sonos back in the day, and that was where I really got started and. Uh, uh, I had been working in England. I actually worked for a uh, a, a spinoff of McDonnell Douglas. Uh, oh, really? You okay. Yeah, they had a they had an IT division that they were trying to build in the nineties, and that was that was uh, my sort of re first real job, if you like, was doing Unix uh, system support for McDonnell Douglas, and um, it, that was of course in England. And it was uh, around 1997 when I actually moved out to the U.S. I had been introduced to someone at um, California State University. So uh, hello to uh, anyone at Cal State that might be listening because uh, that was my first opportunity into the uh, U.S. I moved out here on a 10-month contract and uh, now 20, uh, 25 years later almost, I'm doing a podcast with you from here in the Bay Area. So you know how these things uh, work out. But that was my start. And then I actually ended up joining Sun Microsystems in 2000. Oh, you did? I joined, okay. yeah, I joined at the peak of the dot-com 
uh, bubble. And I was just looking before we started the podcast, I was just looking at the stock market today, which is once again, uh, very red. And there's a lot of oh, chatter <laughs> talking about, um, is this the start of the next bubble popping? And every time someone says that, I, I get these horrible nightmare memories of uh, stomach pains. Uh, and, yeah, yeah, from back in 2000, 2001, when I was given my stock options at an outrageously high dollar amount that uh, never amounted to anything. So yeah, they, I joined at Sun and then actually I moved from Sun. Uh, that was my first sales role. Uh, I was an SE mm-hmm. at Sun and then I moved into um, NetApp uh, around 2004, 2005 when they were growing rapidly. It was an exciting time. It was a, a really exciting time back then. The company was growing like crazy. Mm-hmm. And of course, storage was really, uh, there was so much new stuff in storage with the NetApp, you know, the NAS offerings. And we, we would sell NAS and SAM uh, back mm-hmm. in the day. Uh, and that was my start sort of really into sort of full on storage. And then I joined Symantec after that in their Veritas group for a number of years. And, um, Their file and ended system up- and everything. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And then ended up joining um, uh, Cisco in the UCS group after that. Okay. So I've been around in different roles. Yeah. I started out just a few years after you. So let's call it, well, it's a long story, but that 2001 internet bubble, that whole crash, if you can believe it, up until then, I was selling gold and silver, which you couldn't give away. Then I really started getting serious about my tech career at that point. And just to give you an idea, when I left the um, precious metals industry, gold was trading at about $290 an ounce. So I'll just leave that there. What is it today? What is it today? It's got to be, I don't know, well over a thousand. It was up to 1600 at one point. Um, I think the in like the rise of crypto, I think might start to give gold a run for its money because it's typically been an inflation hedge. Let's definitely talk more about that later. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so then I, after that, uh, I became a Unix system administrator, but I was like an IRIX 6.5 guy. So like I was Pepsi and you were Coke. And then um, I got really, really interested in storage and uh, learned a little bit about NetApp, right, as um, a little startup out of Seattle that had some stuff that didn't work called Isilon was hitting the scene Hmm. and was uh, claimed that they were going to solve all the problems that NetApp had accidentally created while making this market. So it seems like I picked every (laughs) the yang to your ying on uh, every single thing. That's really interesting. Yeah, and it's 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 funny, right? Because you go back into the day, like today we have sort of Apple versus Google versus Facebook. And of course, back right. in the dot-com days, it was Silicon Graphics versus some microsystems yeah. and things like that. And I was yeah. up on, uh, I think, where was it in Mountain View? I think it's Charleston Road. Oh. Uh, and there mm-hmm. was the Sun buildings. And then just across the street was the Silicon Graphics. Uh, buildings. And there was yeah. some definite, you, you know, it was, uh, you could- uh, Some rivalry. That's right. There was some rivalry. You could people would joke about whacking golf balls into the Silicon Graphics building and, and things like that. <laughs> yeah. Well, and of course, SGI got big making flight simulators back to the aerospace theme. And ultimately, um, they just had the biggest graphics head on those origin two thousand servers. We don't need to nerd about out about that too much, but yeah, just restarting just the graphics head on those servers was uh let's say non trivial. Um, back then people used to smoke cigarettes and the artist that operated the machine, the flame operator would, would reboot the origin 2000 like server array 
and would go smoke a whole cigarette and come back and it'll still be rebooting. So that's right. That, that, that was back when it took 25 minutes to yeah. uh, boot the system. Yeah. yeah. No, no one, no one understands how bad it was back then, unless you were <laughs> in it. Yeah. So needless to say now, not a hundred percent, but I would say 75% of the stuff that that guy did on that million dollar machine, you could just do on your laptop and it takes 30 seconds to reboot. So it's crazy. It's crazy, isn't it? If you look at how technology has advanced from a perspective of memory and processing power, there, there is, mm-hmm. you know, there's, it, it's incredible to look at. I mean, the first large system I worked on when I said at McDonald Douglas had one gigabyte of memory in the mid yeah. mid nineties, which was enormous. Uh, it mm-hmm. was, I think it had 20 processors and one gig of memory. And it's it's hard to convey to anyone when you look at a new iPhone, just the, I mean, we talk about Moore's law, we talk about all this sort of stuff, but how to sort of convey that in a term that someone really gets to understand where we have come from. And like you say, your phone now has processing power that dwarfs the supercomputers of 10, 15 years ago. Yep. I mean, the thing that's exciting about that I mean, I, it was fun to watch hardware be improved and improved because that's something I've always been interested in. Interested in, and I felt like the limits of innovation were always we can't get the hardware fast enough to enable the people that are writing the code to change our lives. And you know, um, but now it's like almost the opposite. It's like that. That's all just a commodity, and if you don't have enough on premise, you can just go out to the cloud and get as much as you want. So now it's like just sort of like golden age where. It's almost like developers have to find problems to solve because we've solved so many. I mean, you could use the travel agent analogy or whatever, but so many things have changed in the last 20 years that when I think back to like making a rotary dial call in the kitchen, you know, in the 1980s, <laughs> it's like you can't even imagine how much it's Exactly. There has a lot. And it's interesting to, to, to see the things that really do not change as well. Uh, like if we look in, in enterprise, like back when I was doing storage, yeah, the NetApp days, uh, you, you were looking at data on tap and what that could do, things like snapshots um, and, mm-hmm. and the technical capability that NetApp brought to how easily and how well implemented the snapshotting technology was, was incredible back then. Now, of course, everyone can do snapshots and particularly, I think there's a lot of thanks to ZFS and uh, what those guys yes. did there. But at the same time, things like replication, uh, particularly replication over wide area, those mm-hmm. are still ch- challenges today. They are the same challenges that we had back then because those sorts of problems are extremely difficult to solve. And so although uh, there have been definite improvements, we still end up doing sort of three times replication uh, around the world and, and this kind of stuff. And it still takes time to do that. So there's some things that have changed a lot, and then there's others that uh, really we we still sort of face the same problems because for whatever reason, um, you know, we haven't quite got to you know, you know, finding the the treasure chest at the end of the rainbow that solves it for us. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that the problem is that the data still has to travel, so no matter how big the pipes are, latency is like. It's latency, but I don't think anybody knew when they were deciding, or I don't even know if it was almost decided by accident that the whole world was going to run on TCP IP. I think we all forgot that um, those hand, those handshakes take a lot of overhead. You know? I'm sure I still have uh, that TCP IP illustrated. I think the book was the Bible of TCP IP back in mm-hmm. the, I think, 90s and maybe even older than that. I probably still have that somewhere. Uh, and yes, yeah. it, it is amazing, isn't it? Yeah. And that, I mean... 
pretty much everything else has evolved except for that because we're kind of stuck with that because i mean i don't know how we would even how would we even change that at this point um yeah and i think what what surprised me again i'm not a networking guy by trade and so when i kind of came into juniper uh it was a, a a huge fire hose uh, in terms of what had changed network-wise here. because the last sort of I, when I was doing networking it was really with the Cisco UCS team mm-hmm. uh, because of uh, Cisco UCS of course was uh, FCOE so fiber channel over ethernet which was some of the early converged story uh, and then I had left and, and gone off and, and done a startup um, and when I came back into Juniper, it was amazing to me seeing some of the things that are changing. So overlay networks, for example, virtualizing, uh, even within a typical enterprise data center, using things like EVPN VXLAN to create a network overlay so that if you need to move servers, for example, from one data center to another, it is no longer the huge headache that it is. And that seems to be the direction now to overcome a lot of the, what I would call traditional network headaches that we all know. And uh, well, definitely we, we, we don't love them, but we certainly know them. That's right. Um, let's talk a little bit about this uh, startup you were talking about. So you're, you've got this career as, uh, I mean, it sounds like a Unix guy, a storage guy. You're at NetApp, right? Right before you take the leap. Did I get the timeline right? Or are you at, or are you at UCS at the end? I was. Uh, I started looking at the idea. So I'm. A, you know, I grew up same as you, Tom. I'm guessing in the in the 80s with uh, you mm-hmm. know, computers at home. What was it? The Atari. And uh, yep. in England, we had this. There was a huge industry, uh, cottage industry in England around microcomputers, uh, much more so than I think in the US. Because in the US, the uh, IBM PC took off uh, much um, more. I think greater market share and much more quickly than in, in, say, England, where I think the cost was prohibitive to a lot of people. So we had the these uh, companies like Sinclair, which you may have heard of. Uh, so Clive Sinclair um, was the um, you know, guy that made the ZX Spectrum, and these were low-cost home computers. Uh, they were around 150 pounds, I think, oh. which was, what, $200? Okay, so very inexpensive for that time. Exactly. Yeah. And and so I kind of grew up in that environment. So I was a young sort of gamer in the 80s as, as uh, games were literally yellow blocks on the screen that moved around and, and saw that growth uh, all through the 90s with games like Doom and all this sort of thing that just, and the Sega Genesis and that just changed everything. And so I've I had always had this, sort of you know you get these ideas in the back of your head that you think well I, I should do this one day I had always had this idea that wouldn't it be great to try and set up a games company and I had thought about it in in earnest in the mid-2000s and I and I didn't do anything with it and so when I was working at Cisco in in I think 2014 I had decided with the emergence of mobile particularly everyone starting to play games on I mean the iPad was out and the iPad was going to change the, the, the world in terms of how you could play games on a portable device. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, well, now has to be the time. So actually, I was enjoying things at Cisco, and I, I, I told them, I'm going to go and do a, a gaming startup. I'm going to be mainly based in England again, and I'm going to set up a games company. Everyone thought I was crazy, and in hindsight, they was probably correct. <laughs> but nonetheless, uh, I, I, I was... Uh, over in the UK, set up the company. I actually set up a, an office over here as well in, in California. And I quickly realized 
it's like going from the Atlantic Ocean that maybe you know, being in mm-hmm. tech, into a completely different, like Pacific Ocean. You don't know anything. It's just an ocean, empty ocean. And I didn't really have uh, a clue in terms of uh, how to get things going. So I, I quickly sort of tried to assemble a team. I got some mentors to help me along and build a board of advisors and then got to work on trying to make mobile games. Gotcha. And um, what is the, well, this is like such an easy question and you probably have several answers, but what is the craziest thing that happened while you're running that company? Like what's one of those moments that like good or bad, it was so crazy that, that you'll always remember it. And if nothing else, it's like, you know, 40 years from now, you'll still remember that moment and be glad you did it. I think, yeah, that you end up with so many, right? Whenever you, and I know mm-hmm. this would be the same for you because you founded DZ. You, you, there's so many because it becomes your life. And yeah. there are moments that, that stick out. So a moment for me was uh, we had, uh, at our peak, we had, I think, 12 people, mostly contractors, because in the gaming world, you tend not to bring people in full time until you are very established because it's effectively mm-hmm. project-based. So when a project is completed, you don't necessarily need the same people. Depends, so although yeah. you, you end up working with the same crews, you tend to bring them in. And then when the project's complete, you, you let them go uh, and then bring them back again. And so I, I remember we had three projects going and I think it was about 12 people total. And I distinctly remember uh, two things. One was being on a, on a train coming back from Nottingham in England where I had just met my team and we were trying to, uh, we were pivoting the game because we realized the game wasn't what we wanted. Mm-hmm. And the next day, 24 hours later, I was in a hotel room in Bucharest because the other project, we had hired a Romanian team to help us on the other project. And I had literally gone back from Nottingham, gone to the airport, mm-hmm. flew to uh, Bucharest, Romania to work the next day uh, with a different team on a completely different project. And I was thinking, this is just so different to what I've ever done. You know, I've never done anything like this. Yeah. I've done some ridiculous stuff to like make two meetings I had that I didn't want to move. Um, for us, it was, you know, the team has always pretty much been here or we'll have a few people out there. But I've done some customer related stuff where it was like, you know, the meeting you've been trying to get for three months happens but you can't cancel the one you have. And so then you end up, yeah, kind of the first few times that was fun. Then over time I was like, man, that's uh, I don't know. Like I like traveling for work and stuff, but I definitely reached a point where I was like, I want to try to minimize this um, except for like try to find a way to make it easier. I remember when I took my last red eye, I went to New York, we were doing this job. I, I knew the customer and I wanted to come there and kind of get things kicked off. I had some engineers that were going to start the work. I had a discount code because we have some friends that work in the hotel and restaurant industry. So I was staying at the, you know, the Plaza Hotel in New York for like 200 bucks a night. We woke up. I'm not like a breakfast guy. The guy wanted breakfast. I ordered breakfast. It was to this day still the most expensive. I think it cost more than the room. And then, uh, yeah, I went back like that afternoon. That was too much. That was the last red eye I ever took. Those are like really tough. I think the other thing that happens is when when it's your own company, and I'm sure you found this with, with, with DZ, I, I became very conscious of any expenditure. 
So because it's yeah. it's coming out of you know, and I do I do think that changed my perspective permanently. So even with Juniper mm-hmm. and any other company, you know, I may end up working for, it does change your perspective that the money doesn't come from it doesn't grow on a tree. And I think when yeah. I was doing um, my company. It was everything became how do I try and save money? Uh, do I really need to be spending this? Uh, and if yep. you had people who were idle, this is why we would let people go in between projects because you, you, I could not afford to pay them. And so yep. it was a it was a real challenge. I remember being at the Game Developers Conference uh, up in San Francisco in I think it was 2016, 2017. And that was another breakout moment uh, in terms of we had our first few games and I was uh, mm-hmm. shopping the company around, uh, networking. And, and it was the first of many conferences that I ended up uh, attending or, or speaking at, trying to, because everything is about visibility, isn't it? You're, you're, the, the signal to noise ratio, is it's, it's so challenging if you're a small company. And mm-hmm. I think that's another thing that is is just fantastic being at Juniper. You, you suddenly realize there's a whole army of people behind you uh, that can help out and you have a brand that can be capitalized on. But it was uh, it was a lot of fun. I say uh, the company had just enough success to be dangerous. Yeah. And it is definitely different when there's no big logo behind you. We ended up with our company's name because somebody in an early meeting that we had challenged me and said, you don't even have a company name. So I made it up in the meeting uh, because I needed I needed something to go with. So um, yeah, it's just, it's a different <laughs> dynamic. And I agree with you 100%. It provides some interesting perspective because, I mean, the company's money is the stockholder's money. But when you're one of the stockholders, like in a very real way, you know, you own 20, 50, 100% of something. It definitely, exactly. uh, definitely changes your perspective. Absolutely. What is your favorite game? You said you had it sounds like at least five. What what was did you have a personal favorite out of the games that you made? And is it still out there so people can play it? It is. The company's still going, actually. Uh I sort of act in a curation capacity now. Um but yeah, we did I think we did ten or twelve games. We had some that that, that charted uh in the top ten in the app store briefly, which was uh, you get a big push on revenue for that. One of the things that changed for for us was uh, the market shifted. And this is one of the things that's, whether it's networking, whether you're doing servers, games, whatever, the market changes so quickly in anything technology related. And what we found, there was a big push to the freemium model uh, for games. Mm -hmm. Uh, Games like Candy Crush, you know, were set, but they were the mold by which others were basically following and being made. Same with games like Clash of Clans back in the day. And I think they're still going. And, um, we had adopted more of a uh, sort of uh, puzzle game, premium game where you would pay or you would unlock episodes. And so there was some you know, challenges in how do you pivot your business model quickly enough or how did we pivot it? So mm-hmm. we uh, ended up doing a couple of games that no one in the US has, has really heard of. Uh, one of them was a, um, t- there was a game that was popular in the 80s that we uh, sort of, I, I suppose you might say a reimagining, we mm-hmm. uh, did a completely new version of that. And that is probably my um, happiest game, if you like, uh, to think about, because it was it was very popular. We made some good money off it, and it, it's still popular today, which is, which is great. What tends to happen is when you make a product, I'm sure this is the same for, for every person in the media and entertainment space, when you are extremely closely involved with something being made, 
it becomes the last thing that you actually want to watch or play once it's mm-hmm. finished. And so I do not play a really outside of release. I do not play any of the games that we made. Uh, I rely on other people to to tell me whether they like them. That's funny. I worked. I worked it. Wait, what's the name of the game now? Uh, the name of the game is. It's called uh, Chucky Egg. Uh, 2017 okay. and uh, it was uh, yeah it was a popular game in the early 80s no one had done anything with it and we saw an opening and uh, took advantage of that so chucky egg tell me again the name of it chucky it's egg. Got, yeah chucky egg 2017 because that's All when right. the game came out everybody go out and get yourself a copy of that today um do you do you remember the game leisure suit larry <laughs> indeed yes <laughs> There's a guy I know. We don't have to go too far down this rabbit hole, but he re- he found and reached out to the original developer of the game, who I don't think owned the IP anymore. This is a friend of mine. He's a producer. And they were like trying to make a Leisure Suit Larry movie. I think there was some problems with the rights, but it was just funny. I hadn't thought about Leisure Suit Larry since I was 11 or something. And then, you know. However many years later, there it was. And then, of course, there's like Oregon Trail. That had a weird resurgence, didn't it, where people were interested in that again? Um, yeah, I think I think you can get that in the App Store. Uh, I might be wrong, but I, I think there was a mobile version that, yeah. that was made uh, of Oregon Trail. That never really made it to England, by the way, but it was huge in okay. the U.S. I sort of have this because I... Because I came to the U.S. in 97, I sort of had to do this retro culture ad mm-hmm. over the years of learning what was popular uh, in, in the 80s and 90s because a lot of it drifted over to the U.K., but then some mm-hmm. of it, interestingly, just completely did not um, and never known why. But, yeah, Oregon Trail, I, I remember probably because it was a PC or Apple game, again, versus yep. uh, you know Sinclair or Commodore uh, back then. There was... Um... Electronic Arts, when they were a much younger company and when they were just making like, you know, when all there was was like corny PC games or console cartridges, they made this game called A Bard's Tale, which was clearly supposed to be Dungeons and Dragons the game, but we don't want to license Dungeons and Dragons. Um, And that was the game that I probably went most down the rabbit hole on. It used um, floppy disks. We had it on the Mac and it was like... There was so little storage on discs at that time that like you would be in literally like in the middle of a battle. It would say, hey, can you just put the other disc in because I need to load that up, you know, in order for you to finish this battle. It's pretty funny. That's right. We'll we'll tell you what happens next, but insert disc four. Yes, that's right. (laughs) Yeah, there was uh, one of the guys that I ended up, uh, he was a big mentor to me, a um, guy by the name of Chris Miller. He was uh, a VP down at, um, I think, Warner Brothers, in, Warner Interactive, and then also Vivendi. Mm-hmm. And he, he had done a startup that got bought uh, by uh, Niantic, who made uh, Pokemon Go, and I think they do the Harry mm-hmm. Potter um, mobile games as well. And he and I had many a conversation on old games and rights is such a challenge with many of them. There's actually some companies now that specifically are going out there and hoovering up um, basically the, the, the copyright trail for a bunch of old games, specifically because there's such an interest in doing these things like retro remakes and, and, and this kind of stuff. So yeah, it, rights can be a little bit um, tricky, but uh, he, he used to say that, um, that there's some large companies that will remain la- nameless that absolutely will not sell the rights to stuff, even if they, it's just sitting there in the archive, because they never mm-hmm. know when they might need to use it again. 
Yeah, and in the meantime, if you can go out and hoover up rights, then you only have to be right once, right? Because if somebody, I don't know, they make a remake of a movie or whatnot, I mean, you never know when one of those games is going to... I mean, I had totally forgotten about Oregon Trail, and then my Facebook feed is like blowing up with, I guess, basically like Oregon Trail memes. Like the way that you perished in that game was always like really messed up. I mean, it was like very dark. And one of them was like your whole party dies of dysentery. <laughs> there was like a, you know, meme made out of that. Pretty wild. Yeah, they've, they've had, um, they, they, there's been various sort of attempts, I think, to to follow suit. I mean, there was a, there was a big uh, uh, text adventure game. Uh, do you remember Zork? Uh, Zork was a big uh, adventure game yeah. that that had some that similar sort of, uh, I suppose you say dark humor. Uh-huh. At some point, right after I got the Sega Genesis, I kind of didn't pay attention to games for a long time, and then the next game that I played, I mean, years and years and years went by, and then I played uh, GoldenEye on the Nintendo sixty four, and I was like, I don't know what to do with this controller. This is the coolest thing I've ever seen. I actually ended up like staying up all night playing it at a friend's house and there was like there was problems at home because the spouse was like where have you been all night and i was like playing james bond and it just wasn't believable coming for me like there's no way that would ever happen um (laughs) and so i was afraid of how much time i would spend so i never bought the console but um well you've met justin that works with me i would talk and talk and talk about goldeneye and at one point he came into the office with a raspberry pi where he had made a Nintendo 64 emulator. And for, I don't know, I think it was a good couple months, um, we had GoldenEye, and then we realized that was just going to crush productivity. Because, of course, I kept challenging everyone to play it with me. <laughs> That's right. The productivity was was dropping for an unknown reason. <laughs> That's right. But it's, it's, interesting, it's interesting, though, when you look at uh, you know, game development and then product development, um, because my background, when I was at Cisco and Symantec, I was actually in product management. I would do new product introduction. So they would give me things that, that were engineering projects that they mm-hmm. wanted to turn into you know, a shipping product. Um, and that was kind of what I was involved with. And then you know, going out and trying to evangelize those products to the sales organization and then out to uh, you know, the public. And what was interesting was going into gaming. Uh, it, it was an eye-opening um, sort of adventure because so much of when you're making a product is the same, no matter what the product is, whether it's a game, a server, a bit of software, a cloud app, it, the process that, you know, the concept validation, prototyping, shipping, how are you going to support it? That, that is, is the, it's, it's identical. And it was interesting to see that was the one area where I actually felt some level of comfort in that I was, yes, I was making something that I'd never done before, but the process to do it was, Mm -hmm. was similar. I mean, obviously there's, there's, there are differences, but the high level process is, is the same. And it it really does take, uh, it emphasized as well how no one person can do everything, no matter what. You have to build a team and that team, everyone comes together and that's how you ship a product. Yeah. I was, uh, there was, uh, uh, one of the things that, that, uh, again, my, my friend Chris Miller said, and, and I double checked this as well, was I think 90% of gaming projects, and I think it applies to other media and entertainment projects as well, uh, never actually ship. Obviously, movies are an ex television on a grand scale is an exception because there's a, they go through a big process, but certainly for I think game it development. It depends on, 
Depends on where you are in the process. I mean, I would take the over on that if it was projects in development, making it to the point where there's an actual budget to do more than a proof of concept. I mean, there's like thousands and thousands of movie projects that get started, but never. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, They never get the full budget, right? And then of course, even if they make the whole movie, then somebody has to come up with the feature marketing budget, which is... uh, Exactly. And, and that was, as it turns and, out. and that was one of the big things was, and that's one of the differences between, I think, enterprise software um, and, and hardware and, and say consumer entertainment in that mm-hmm. making the product is one thing, then you have to market the product and the marketing easily costs more than the game did in this case to make. That was a huge eye opener to me. Uh, yeah, that was enormous. You know, we would budget, say, fifty grand to make the game, and then realize that we needed another fifty grand or more to tell people about the game. Which was why so many uh, successful games were relying on how do I go viral, and even that that, uh, that happens in enterprise now, right? How can we try mm-hmm. and make a product that we think can go viral a little bit so that we don't have to do paid advertising uh, exclusively? Yeah, it's the whole like building a community around something, which is, I mean, that is something I think that's exciting about like the democratization of the internet and whatnot. I mean, sometimes I think maybe ideas that aren't so great get a little bit too big of a platform because it's the barrier to entry has been lowered so much. But it is cool how if something really, really is good and people really, really love it and they tell their friends about it, all these sort of like various social media platforms, just the way that information travels so quickly on the internet can take somebody who maybe doesn't have the most sophisticated marketing machine and still, you know, get them to the top of the list. It's like pretty cool. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then that can cut both ways, right? Because if you make a bad product, uh, yeah. it, it, that and will that equally happen out. in the other direction, right? Yeah. So yeah, absolutely. But it is, I think it's a net, net positive. Yeah. So tell me in terms of like current technology trends and not, not confined to the work you do necessarily, but like, what are you most excited about? Um, you know, I don't know, AI, electric cars. Do you have a big crypto position? I mean, what's, uh, what are, what are the big trends that you're excited about? Yeah. Yeah. Good question. I think it's an interesting time, isn't it? I'm, I'm a little bit jaded because I've been in tech so long and I know that we latch onto buzzwords. Uh, and Mm -hmm. so what was it? I think five, 10 years ago, it was big data was, was Mm -hmm. the buzzword. And now of course it's AI. So everyone's uh, chat assistant is an AI powered chat assistant. Everyone's user interface is AI powered. And so I think what that will shake out a bit over the the next few years. And I think we'll see companies that really have put time into developing um, innovative um, AI to help administrators, to help customers, those will be the ones that that step forward. And I think others where they were sort of saying they do it, but mm-hmm. with mixed success, though that will be the shakeout that happens. So I think AI is an interesting one. Um, I certainly think with what we're doing at Juniper uh, with our MIST stuff is actually pretty cool for uh, network management. Um, I love the fact uh, even as an old sys- sysadmin, not so much a network administrator, but as, as, a, as an old sysadmin, I, I love the fact that with the MIST um, you know, infrastructure and the MIST AI, you can just do natural language questions. You can just say, hey, sh- show me how to happy users. And it goes, finds you know, anyone that's having bad network issues. And the one I like the most from a network perspective is you can have it go find missing VLANs for you um, on that's ports. Cool. So you can say, hey, show me ports with missing VLANs. And I mean, that's inherently valuable, right? Because that's a very difficult thing to do manually. You're going through a ton of logs. You're trying to basically yeah. figure out what's going on. And that's where AI can really help out. 
I think on a personal level, I, I continue to be extremely excited by self-driving cars. And I'm hoping that when I'm old enough and my eyesight doesn't work, they'll have cracked the code. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but uh, I think also that's a very it's it's such a complex challenge to solve, right? You've not only got everything involved, everything that you need to do to make a car self-drive, but you've got the networking challenges. How do you get all that data across the wire, mm-hmm. or in this case, over say five G? You've also got the challenges. How do I process that data? And that brings up things like Nvidia with their GPUs and some of the new DPU technology that's coming out. This idea that we will use processors specific to the tasks that we're trying to solve. I think that um, is a really interesting evolution versus where we were sort of five, 10 years ago. So that's, I think, is, is exciting. Yeah, crypto. I think my crypto wallet gets, uh, is shrinking by the day at the moment. How's yours doing? Well, I was very, very late. So I did not buy any crypto until the lockdown. That was my first investment. I did pretty well. I hung on to it. All that got not all of the money, but all of the additional value creation got wiped out. And um, now I'm kind of trying to, so I'm definitely better than even, but you know, I've, somebody told me, somebody close to me told me to buy 5,000 worth in, I don't remember what year it was. I want to say 2011 or something, 2012. And she um, reached out to me when crypto hit about 15,000 and said bitcoin specifically and said this is how much money you would have had if you would have put 5000 in and um so that haunts me but you know you can't chase it right and it seemed totally insane at that time so i, I, I how's mine doing it's doing okay i actually think if i can just acquire small bits over time and hold on to it like a warren buffett strategy towards crypto reinvest the dividends i think i i believe that over time um I'll make money. I'm also, I love playing craps. Like I have with small amounts of money, I have a very high appetite for risk. So I have a different app, different than Coinbase that like kind of specifically deals in like all the super shady tokens that are high probably going like, to go belly up <laughs> tomorrow. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I think my story is actually very similar. Yeah. I think my story is very similar to yours. I remember hearing about Bitcoin, you know, 10 years ago um, when it was starting out and thinking it was the stupidest thing. Um, why would anyone want this? I, I'm only going to speak for myself here, but as a tech person, I think I, I was unfairly influenced that it could never take off because of my tech background. And I think mm-hmm. people who told me about it and said, you've got to get involved with this, they were not tech people. But it's a digital currency. It's going to take over the world. And I'm like, well, that makes no sense. It's not going to happen. So like you, I actually only got into crypto last year. Uh, Actually, when when COVID sort of took off and I was looking around and realizing um, maybe I should actually swallow my tech pride, realize that this is a real thing and and get involved. And yeah, like you, I, I do the same thing. I just go long. I just drip in. Uh, I buy a, a bunch of the little altcoins over time, um, knowing that um, most of them probably won't make it. But if they do hit, it, it's, a, it's a big win. I, I think it's got a very promising future, but I think this is an intermediate stage. Do you know what I mean? I don't think in 20 years we'll be using Bitcoin but I think it will be something. And I think this is sort of a transitional period. It definitely seems like it's, it's going to be the future. Yeah. And I mean, the good news about specifically Bitcoin is there's so much money in there that to me, it's although it's not a 
So my challenge was, this is something you want me to treat as a hard asset. But if you look at it as a hard asset, it's actually weaker than fiat currency because it doesn't even have a government behind it. So the whole mind screw, the whole paradox of that's why it's worth something, it took me 10 years to turn the corner on that because I just, I'm slow. I didn't get it. I think, um, I think but, one of the pinnacle points that or one of the tipping points for me where I realized I had to go in was I was actually out trying to buy a video card mm-hmm. and I realized that the, 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 the shelves were empty and I'm like, well, this is ridiculous. You know, if all these people yeah. are buying video cards, maybe there is something to this after all. Yeah. Well, there's so much, there's so much wealth in it now. And now from, you know, bigger and bigger investors. And I think I don't know to what extent, but to a certain extent, you know, once you see institutional investors start to circulate a prospectus about, hey, we might want some of our, you know, large clients to get into this, like at that point, I feel like the market's been made. So the bad news is probably most of the money that was going to be made has already been made. But yeah. For me, it was like the risk averse part of me was like, okay, this is now stable. It still seems to be going up. So I'm going to get into it. Indeed. Yes. And I think there is a just, a, I forget what the market cap of Bitcoin is at this point, but yeah, there's it, got a huge amount of whale money in it now. I think, and, and what's interesting though, is con, it's constrained by itself. Uh, I mean, the transactions per second that Bitcoin can process is super low, yeah. right? And, and so there's almost this search that's happening now for a coin for the masses, because you, you yeah. have to be able to um, you know, transact tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands. If you look at how many transactions Visa does, for example, I mean, it's, it's, it's just an order of magnitude greater. And so yes. there's this sort of hunt for a coin that can be used by everyone. And, and that's why I think in some ways that, that may not be Bitcoin. Maybe Bitcoin is purely that investment model. But uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's definitely going to be the future. I guess it will be when the feds decide they want to have a digital coin. And uh, yeah. that, that'll be the, uh, uh, the bit that really does drive everyone crazy. Yeah. Well, and as slow as they move, who knows how long that'll take. It could be three months from now. It could be 10 years from now. You just never know. So, all right. Well, hey, we are out of time. I like really, really appreciate you joining me today. It was a pleasure working with you. And this has been an absolute pleasure getting to know you a little bit better. Um, what are you doing this weekend, my friend? Uh, this weekend, I am car shopping. Uh, I have a, an old car at the moment. I have a 2015 Ford that has been absolutely fabulous, but uh, I've realized that it, it needs uh, it needs servicing, it needs new tires. So I'm like, right, mission. I don't like buying cars, so I try and put off the process as long as possible. And so I've decided mm-hmm. this weekend is the weekend I'm going to do car shopping. Uh, my girlfriend flies back from Singapore on Sunday, and so I, I'm going to try and get everything done because she said, "Well, I'm not going car shopping with you. You're doing it on your own." Gotcha. She's like, "I know." She's like, "I know what you're like. I don't want to be there when you're car shopping." So uh, yeah. I'm going to try and get that sorted out, and uh, and then the rest will be a quiet weekend for me. How about yourself? What am I doing? Our dog has been getting trained for a long time, and I think she's returning home this weekend. And uh, tonight. I'm eating at my favorite restaurant, actually. So pretty, pretty strong weekend. Sunday, no plans. So definitely awesome. uh, awesome. going to be a good weekend. So, well, great. Thank you very much for doing this. I really Thanks. appreciate it. And thank uh, you for having me. I'm sure I'll see you soon. Congratulations on everything. Absolutely. Thanks, Tom. Appreciate it. Take care. Thanks again for joining this week's episode of Fresh Tech Fridays. I'm your host, Tom Gilsonen. I want to thank Jason Johnson for composing our theme music. RSPE and especially Russ for some help with engineering and equipment for the podcast. 
Molly Crone for helping me make this all possible, and the undisputed podcast engineering champion, the mighty Jeff Rockland, engineering from afar in the South Bay. If you want to learn more about Jeff and all the different projects that he's working on, you can hit him on the web at jrocksgarage.com. J-R-O-C-K-S garage.com. So make sure to check that out. Thanks again and look forward to seeing you next time.